If you would, turn to the Bible to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Thank you all for that. If 40 is a big one, and y'all aren't supposed to draw that much attention to it. <laughs> this morning, somebody told me 40 is the new 20. I don't feel 20 <laughs> by any means, not at all. But if you start talking about how old you feel at 40, everybody older than 40 makes you feel bad, right? Thank you for that. I feel the love. I love you all too. Uh, I'm so thankful for the opportunity to be in church on a Sunday during the Christmas season. And I'm really thankful for a, a, a kid's program like that that has drawn our attention to the Word of God. You know, sometimes you plan and, and there's a big disconnect, and sometimes you plan and it just goes well together. I told y'all back at Thanksgiving that for Christmas we were going to go through all of Matthew 1 and 2. And we've covered now the genealogy, we've covered the birth of Christ, last week we covered the visit of the wise men, which are the magi, and then today we're going to finish out chapter 2, and it, it, it's a little bit of an odd passage. It is the Christmas story still, but it's a little bit of an odd passage because there aren't a lot of, uh, there isn't a lot of story there, it's just a lot of traveling uh, and a lot of prophecy. And at the beginning of the week, at the beginning of the week, I had not been paying too much attention to the specifics of what the kids were doing. At the beginning of the week, I contacted Matt, and I said, Matt, what's the, what's the name of this kids program that you're doing? And he said, the, the present of prophecy. And I'm sitting here studying my, my passage for today, and it's all about the prophecy. And I told Matt, I said, Matt, I love it when God brings it together. What I'm preaching on today is exactly what they've been working on for the last several weeks. It goes together, and God made that happen, and I'm thankful for that. The passage today ends up, Matthew chapter 2, it ends up the birth narratives, if you've ever heard it called that before, and it's about Jesus and his family being on the run. You know, you hear those statistics all the time about how many homes the average person lives in in their lifetime. You've heard that before. And then you hear stories about how often families have moved around. And a lot of times you'll hear somebody say, man, by the time I was in high school, we had already lived in five different places, right? Or by the time I was in elementary school, I had already been to three different schools, three different neighborhoods, three different cities, three different states, that sort of a thing. And we often think that all of that moving may be hard on the social life, right? We, you know what I'm talking about. We, we hear that. Well, in our passage today, we don't really see any of that. We do see the travel of Jesus. We do see his family on the run. We do see his family fleeing. And to really catch your attention, we do see the family of Jesus as refugees going to different countries. Right? We do. And your hearts are warmed to that, and you like that, and perhaps we should further be warmed to that and like that. What we have going on here today is Jesus' family going to other places because God has directed them to. And as God has directed them to, what they are also doing is they are running for safety. We're to notice that this is all the plan of God. Now, it is hard, and this is one of the big struggles that we have as Christians and as a church with a witness in, in, in our world today, specifically in the setting where you and I live. It is hard to get people like you to see how desperate you are in need of a Savior. We think we need help. We don't necessarily think we need redemption. 
And in thinking that we need help, we think we need help sometimes. For there are a lot of times where we can handle this on our own and we don't need help. That's kind of the way you and I live if we're honest. The Bible wants us to understand that we are in grave danger, that we are condemned already, that the wages of sin is death, that apart from Christ we can do nothing, that there is no other name given among men under heaven whereby anybody will be saved apart from the name of Jesus. He is the savior of the world, and unless you are found in him, holding tight to him with faith, you will not be saved. You will walk into the judgment and into eternity forever without God. Well, the Bible wants us to know how badly we need him. So when you're reading through the Old Testament and God begins first with his family, his family of God, his people of Israel, his children, which is what the prophecy is all talking about, they quickly recognized, listen, how badly they needed him. Really, the story of the Old Testament in a lot of ways is we're supposed to be the people of God, they would think, but we don't really look like it. There are so many times where we're not living like God would have us to live, and that is so much of the pain and so much of the struggle in the Old Testament. And so God is telling them, if you don't live for me, then you cannot be my people. And in the midst of that struggle, you don't have God telling them, do better. You have glimpses of promise that he's sending hope, that he's sending a savior. As his people wrestle with their identity, we're supposed to be God's people, but we don't look like God's people. I'm supposed to be obedient to God, but I'm not really obedient to God. I'm supposed to be a worshiper of God, but I'm not really worshiping God. I'm more wrapped up in my sins, and I'm more desiring to be like all the other nations. As they wrestle with that identity, God does not say, but I'm going to fix you or something like that. God does not say, do better. He doesn't. He says, I'm sending hope. And he points us to this coming one, Jesus, that they could believe in as a Savior coming, that we could believe in as a Savior who came. They looked forward to the Savior coming into the world to die on the cross for our sins. We look back at the Savior of the world coming into the world to die on the cross for our sins. In our passage today, Matthew specifically wants you and I to say, did all of that really happen? Was it talked about that much beforehand? And did it, did it really come to pass so that it was all fulfilled? Did it really happen? And if we say yes, and if we submit ourselves to believing that this is true, then you and I must commit. You and I must believe. We must run to God and say, God, I need you too. And I see that you welcome me in my desperate need for you. So read with me, if you will, at Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read 13 through the end of the chapter. Matthew 2, 13 through the end of the chapter. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, 
according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Wow. Jesus' er, early life was chaotic, was it not? The Savior of the world who sits on the throne, who reigns in victory, that every knee will bow down to one day, right? Every knee will bow down to Christ at one day. That guy had a humble beginning. That guy had a rough few years at the start. We see his dad and mom being very faithful to the calling of God. We see his dad and mom being very obedient to all that God had asked them to do, but it was difficult. Matthew begins with the genealogy as it points us that the whole Old Testament, the family tree had promised a Savior and the Savior came. It points us to the birth of Christ in Matthew chapter 1 from Joseph's perspective as he finds out that his wife Mary that he'd never been with is pregnant. That was from God, from the Holy Spirit. That fulfills the prophecy as well in Isaiah. And then sometime later, the visit of the Magi, the visit of those who came from afar, those Gentiles who traveled far away to get there so they could see this kid, so they could worship him. We talked about that last week, that they came to worship him. You remember that if you were here last week? And I talked about how there are really three responses to the Savior of the world being born. There are those who adore him and worship him like the Magi did. There are those who are apathetic toward him. They don't really care. They're unmoved by it like the prophets and scribes were. They knew the answer. They knew the prophecy. They just weren't moved by it. And then you had those who opposed it like King Herod. They were antagonistic toward it. They were uh, angry about it. They were going to do something about it. They were going to try to stop it. And that is what we pick up on here today at Matthew chapter 2. My first point this morning is rise and flee. Rise and flee. And you see this here at verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. You know, we often talk about in, in church and in Christianity that there is a tendency for you and I to try to spin all things church and Christianity into just goodness or just into just good luck or just into hope it makes your life better. And there is a lot of that, right? Certainly, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning, right? Great is God's faithfulness. We know God to be a good and faithful God. But when you get to studying the Bible, the Bible teaches us about the reality of this hard and difficult life that you and I found ourselves in and the brute, honest truth, right? 
is that life is hard, life is painful, life hurts, there is struggle. That's the reality. And so it ought not to surprise us, okay? It ought not to surprise us that we read about this now. And right here in the Christmas story, what we have going on is the Savior of the world being sent from heaven to come to earth. And as soon as he gets here, and Herod catches word of it because he didn't really understand what was going on, he decides he's going to kill all the babies because he wants to kill that one. I'm sure there's a lot of people who think we might not even tell that part of the story. That, that's just so negative. Could we leave that out? But folks, I want you to understand that there are a lot of people who feel that way about God. There are a lot of people that feel that way about God, about God's message. There are a lot of people that feel that way about God and his son and God and his savior. And we need to understand this here, that it was that very reason, that attitude, that response to God, that God came to us. You know, in speaking of Jesus being born in a manger, you know, let's, let's not miss the obvious that in a manger, in a stall, in a barn, there would be stinky animals and there would probably be, you know, a dung from the animals that are there. And I heard, I heard a great quote this week as I've been studying on this that said, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus was born in a dung heap for he knew he would find us there. The reality is in this life is that you and I can get so worked up. We can become so ugly in character and in attitude our love can become so short. The reality of this life is that there is a sin in every one of us that is working against us and that is not of God. And you and I need a savior. Jesus was born into the world because God loves us. And the world did not receive him Herod was so taken back by this, right? Those magi showed up and they said, hey, we're looking for the king. And Herod goes, what king are you talking about? I'm the king. And they're like, no, no, we're looking for the real king, the newborn king, the, the savior king, the promised king. That's who we're looking for. And it alarmed Herod. And Herod said, I've got to do something about this. And what he's going to do is he's going to have all the children killed. It is an ugly scene. It's a part of the story. Now, it's not the biggest part of the story, but it is a part of the story, and we need to know it. One commentator says how true it is that the rulers of this world are seldom friendly to the cause of God. The Lord Jesus comes down from heaven to save sinners, and at once we are told that Herod the king seeks to destroy him. That's real. That's real. Now, notice, listen, this will diagnose your heart. Notice that he didn't want to kill him because he was so bad. He didn't want to kill Jesus because Jesus was so bad. He had not grown up and become this authoritarian. He had not grown up and become this dictator. He had not grown up and become this powerful king. He was a baby. The reason why he wanted to destroy him is because who he was and who he thought he was and the way he viewed himself and what his identity and his confidence and his peace and his joy and his purpose in life did not match up with God's. That'll speak to every one of us. You know what anxiety, you know what frustration, you know what anger comes from? It's when who we want, we want ourselves to be doesn't match up with who we actually are. 
And every single one of you all can get worked up and can get frustrated and can get hurt and start to hurt people when what we're expecting to be ourselves doesn't match up with what we really are. And sometimes a look in the mirror exposes that. And sometimes an honest conversation exposes that. And sometimes the true word of God exposes that. But guess what? We can admit it and accept it and not run from it because God loves us and he receives us back. Herod did not do that. Herod did not accept it that there might be a king greater than him. Herod did not accept it that God had potentially sent a king that would be greater than him. Herod did not accept that his kingship and his reign could be submitted to God's, and that was the problem. And so we have Joseph being told to rise and flee. J.C. Ryle says, the Lord Jesus was truly a man of sorrows even from his infancy. Trouble awaits him as soon as he enters the world. We see this in our passage today. His dad, who had already dealt with that scene of his wife being pregnant, not from him, is now told that the king wants to kill him. We have this phrase here, man of sorrows, which comes from Isaiah 53, where the Bible describes the coming Savior, according to the prophet Isaiah, as the man of sorrows. We have a hymn written called The Man of Sorrows. I want to read it to you to paint a further picture of this Jesus. You know, at Christmas time, a lot of times you all only refer to him as the baby Jesus, right? There was that movie that came out a few years ago where he made popular calling him Sweet Baby Jesus. That ain't cool. It ain't good. No, he wasn't Sweet Baby Jesus long. He is the authoritative king of everything. If you're making a sweet little joke and you call him the sweet baby Jesus, I guess that's all right. Don't do it too much. In your desperate crying out to God, do not call him sweet baby Jesus. In your prayers, do not call him sweet baby Jesus. Call him king of kings, Lord of lords, and say, Father in heaven, have mercy on me. He was a man of sorrows. He didn't come here cute and pretty. He didn't come here like an angel. He wasn't one. He found no place to lay his head. He was despised by all and rejected. He was a man of sorrows. He entered into this world on the run with his mom and dad. Here's what Man of Sorrows, our great hymn says. Man of sorrows, what a name for the son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. Lifted up was he to die, it is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high, hallelujah, what a savior. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song will sing, hallelujah, what a savior. The Bible describes our Lord Jesus as a man of sorrows. As he entered into the world, we have this theme in Matthew chapter two of rise and flee. Well, where were they fleeing to? Well, they were told to go to Egypt, and I love this. 
One of the first couple mission trips I went on was to Africa. I went to South Africa in 2001, and I went to Ethiopia in 2002, and in a, in a, in a, in a neat little turn of events, my wife, who is Ecuadorian, grew up in Africa. She grew up in Kenya. She lived eight years there, and, 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 and I praise God for it. So because I had been to Africa a couple times, I really had a big heart for Africa, and my wife grew up there, so she's got a big heart for Africa. And it's kind of a dream of ours one day to be able to show our kids Africa And I want you all to have a good, healthy, biblical Christian understanding that Africa is a special place in the Bible. Africa is a special place in the Bible. We have mentions of it. Egypt is in Africa. We are not to think of Africa as such a a lost place they do not have God there. We are to see Africa as like anywhere else in the world where they need Jesus and it is a part of God saving people. There are Africans that love God. There are Africans that love Jesus, and we have here that the angel told Joseph to go to Egypt, flee to Egypt. That Egypt would be a place where Joseph and Mary and their baby Jesus could go and find safety, could go and live for a while, could go and stay as refugees, and it would be all good there. They would save their lives. They would not die there. If they were to stay where they were from, they would possibly die. The baby certainly would. King Herod was coming. Jesus, our Savior, would have been killed if he stayed there. So God tells them to go to Egypt. And they do. They have to stay there for a while. Because it's not until Herod dies that they're actually told to leave. But I guess they could have gone anywhere, right? They could have gone in any direction. You know, there are other places they could have gone. But the Bible tells us that he was told to go to Egypt. Then we have down here, if you'll look, verse 15, it says this. And this is so in line with the present of prophecy that Matt and the children just did. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Y'all, on so many levels, seriously, on so many levels, The reason why that happened was just to show us that Jesus fulfills the plan of God. They could have gone anywhere, but God had told us hundreds of years before that his son would come out of Egypt. And if you're sitting here thinking, out of Egypt? What in the world? I mean, they're from from Israel. They're from Jerusalem. They're from Bethlehem. What what do they got to do with Egypt? How are they going to go to Egypt? Well, they end up in Egypt because of the whole situation with Herod. And as the time comes for them to leave Egypt, it fulfills the Bible, Hosea. But remember, I'm telling you that every bit of this is God's answer to our need. That's what I'm trying to get you to see, that every bit of this is God's answer to our need. And I believe that the more you listen or the more you pay attention or the more you read or the more you sit and think, you will grow in understanding your need. And by the grace of God, he'll open up your eyes to see that Jesus is the answer to that need. That's what we're hoping that Jesus is the answer to that need. Do you remember Hosea? It wasn't that long ago I just preached to the minor prophets. Do you remember Hosea? Do you remember the story of Hosea? Do you remember that? That God told him to marry a prostitute? Do you remember that when I preached through it? Remember how ugly that whole story was? God's people had become so unfaithful and he's married to this person that's, that's unfaithful and he's like, man, this isn't cool. Man, I got got a wife and she's unfaithful to me, God. I don't like this. And God says, that's what y'all are like to me. My people are supposed to be faithful to me and they're not faithful to me. 
And it dawns on Hosea like, we're supposed to be faithful to God and God's faithful to us. And what you have in Hosea is just all of this talking and talking, a lot of chapters in Hosea about how the people have been unfaithful and this isn't good and God doesn't like it and they shouldn't be living that way. You shouldn't be okay with sin in your life. You shouldn't be okay with disobedience. You shouldn't be okay with living against God and all of that. And then right there in Hosea chapter 11, verse one, it says, out of Egypt, I've called my son. And if you're not paying attention when you're reading Hosea, you're like, okay, well, I don't know what that means. Then when you get here to Matthew, and the baby Jesus enters into the world by the birth of a virgin, and God's got your attention that he sent his son, and then you hear, you mean out of the setting of Hosea? All of that ugly unfaithfulness? All of that disobedience? All of that stuff where God's people didn't really live for God? You mean out of there God told us he's coming? That's right. And all God wanted you to understand from that is that you unfaithful people need a savior and God sent him. God told Joseph to rise and flee and he did. And from that, we have God fulfilling the Old Testament passage of out of Africa, I will bring my son. Out of Egypt, I will bring my son. So number one, rise and flee. But number two, remain and weep. Remain and weep. If you look at verse 13, it says, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. Remain there until I tell you. So there's the word remain that I'm using. Jump down now to verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Now, I wasn't really sure about this, and so I looked it up and I got to study, and all the commentators are saying this wouldn't have been really more than a day. It was only six miles away, so they would have been able to get there and come back real quickly, and so he found out really quickly that he had been tricked, okay? I think originally when I first read it, I was thinking, you know, some weeks or some months had gone by. No, they're, taking, they're saying this would have happened in just a day or two. That he had sent them, it was only six miles. He expected them to go and come back, and he noticed right away. Another thing that I picked up on through studying is that Bethlehem was so small. Remember, it's considered small. I told you all that. Bethlehem was so small that they estimated there may have only been like 20 babies. So we had, we had thought about possibly, you know, this big, huge slaughter of all of these. No, maybe only just 20 or so. So it gives a little bit of a different understanding there, right? But that's what Herod does. He goes to have them all killed, and he does. Now notice, if Jesus had been there, he would have been killed. Were it not for Joseph's obedience to get to Egypt, Jesus would not have been spared. Now all of this is in the plan of God, but notice that that's what happened. All of the two and unders were killed there because of Herod. We are to understand how bad and wrong and evil Herod was. But notice next, verse 17. This slaughter of the babies was fulfilled, or it helped fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Listen to me. There are sometimes, okay, if you want a little, little, little school lesson right here, listen to this. There are sometimes with prophecy, okay, where they say it's going to happen, we don't know what's happening, it happens, and we say, oh, that's what that was, okay? But there are other times in prophecy that we call a type, and types are really good. 
We're not to make up our own types. We only understand a type when the Bible says it's a type. It's where something has already happened in history, and we know that setting, and then something happens with Jesus, and the Bible says that that happened there also points us to that that happened with Jesus. Everybody understand that? That's called a type. Let me give you really the best kind of type, and this will help you, okay? I don't know if you wanted a little Bible study lesson here today, but that's what you're getting, okay? At John chapter 3, all right? Verse 16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, right? Everybody knows that verse, John 3, 16? Well, the verses right before it in John chapter three say this. You probably know verse 14. And as Moses, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life, right? You know that? So what happened in the story, okay, with Moses, right, is that they're in the wilderness and there's all of these snakes attacking the people, Right? And Moses is told to lift up the bronze serpent. And if they looked at the serpent, they would be saved. If they didn't look at the serpent, they would die. Okay, that was really happening. And so you got this awesome scene of them getting bit by the snakes and they would turn and look at the serpent and then they wouldn't die. But for all the people that did not listen to the message to look at the serpent, they died. So the whole point of that is listen to what God tells you to do. Look at the serpent. God said to do it. It's not that looking at a serpent means anything. It's that God told you to look at the bronze serpent. Everybody understanding that? But that really happened. That scene with Moses and the serpents and looking at the serpent in order to be saved for your salvation and all that really happened. But then in the New Testament, right, in John chapter 3, we're told that the same thing is with Jesus, that you're all dying, and if anybody looks to Jesus, they'll be saved. The same way as it was then with Moses with the bronze serpent. You see who that is? That's a type. And when you read that then in, 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 the, in the early books of the Bible about Moses, you may not have thought that that means Jesus. But then when the New Testament tells us that's also what it's like with Jesus, then you like it, right? Another one is Jonah, right? Another one is Noah, okay? Those are types. Everybody that was on the ark, saved. Everybody that's in Christ, saved. Everybody understand that? Those are types, well, that's what we've got going on here. Because this weeping with, with, with Rachel really happened. This is from Jeremiah chapter 31. This really happened. She was really weeping. God had allowed the Babylonians to come in and destroy the people of Israel. They were living under this judgment. They had been unfaithful to God. And God had said, if you don't turn to me, I'm going to have to send a nation to judge you to wake you up. And he did. And lots of them died. And Rachel was there crying her eyes out. It really happened. But Matthew writes that that's a type because when King Herod came and all his evil, he killed all the babies. And the people of Israel are left there going, what's going on with us? The world ain't right. They were weeping. Remain and weep. They remained in Egypt while Israel was weeping. That really happened. And you and I, as we live in this world, listen, must be able to be aware of the sadness. We must be able to recognize and connect with the weeping. There is an effort today for us to be people that are only positive and ignore everything that's not. And I understand that none of us like ne negativity, but that's not reality. There is a time in our lives where life hurts. The Bible says that the church must learn to mourn with those who mourn. It also says to rejoice with those who rejoice. But it says we must be able to grieve. The Bible says, blessed are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. 
It's okay for you to say, man, this Christmas is hard on us. I really miss such and such. I'm not able to be with them. I don't have any money to spend. I'm hurting. It didn't like it used to be. Right? That's a reality. And it's okay for you to say, this is hard and hurt. It's okay for you to cry. It's okay for you to weep. It's okay for you to say, God, life isn't all positive for me right now, but here's what I know. I need you. You need to hear that Christmas story and say, hear God say, I got you. Remain and weep. But that quote, as uh, Lily read for us so well, comes from Jeremiah 31. By the way, Lily, outstanding job reading. You're a fast reader too. That comes from Jeremiah 31. If you know anything about Jeremiah 31, right? Listen to this. The weeping. Weeping of Rachel in Jeremiah 31. If you know anything about Jeremiah 31, listen to this. Same chapter. Picture the weeping, right? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Hey, y'all, when God makes a covenant, you can't break it. You hear me? They broke that one. Not gonna break this new covenant. Listen to this. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. You know what that is? That's not the old covenant where God says, obey me and I will bless you. That is the new covenant that says Jesus Christ is a savior. If you will believe in him, God will change your heart. That's what that's about. And when God changes your heart, you don't break the covenant. When God changes your heart, you rest in him being a savior and you say, God, forgive me. You don't say, God, I gotta be good enough for you to welcome me. No, you don't. You say, God welcomes me because of the forgiveness that comes through Christ when he died on the cross for me. The difference between the old covenant and new covenant is night and day. God is not asking you to do anything to earn his salvation. God has done it all in Christ, if you will believe. Remain and weep points us to that because it's a quote from Jeremiah 31 and Jeremiah 31 is the passage in the whole Old Testament that explains best for us the new covenant. Praise God for that. But lastly, not only is there a rise and flee, not only is there a remain and weep, but lastly, there is a return and keep. Rise and flee, remain and weep, return and keep. Verse 19 says, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life or dead. It's like a relief to them. Okay, that's over with. The fear that you're living in in Africa as refugees, it's over. Now you can head back. Okay, verse 21, he arose, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel Check this out. When he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. See, Herod had died so they could go back, but the new king here, Archelaus, was even worse. 
Actually, Herod had three sons, and they divided it up into, they divided the land up into three different portions, so where they were actually going is where Archelaus was. But Archelaus was known as being horrible and bad and mean and ugly and also a really bad king. See, King Herod was mean and ugly, but he was really, really good. We've got to be careful with our leaders, okay? Just because somebody can produce results doesn't mean we want them. Herod produced the results. Man, he was building things and things were going well. Economy was good, but his character was terrible. Nobody likes King Herod. There aren't any believers in the world that are in favor of King Herod, right? He's trying to kill Jesus, and that makes it obvious. You gotta be careful with supporting somebody whose character is in question. And what we have here after King Herod dies is we've got Archelaus, and he's bad. This Archelaus is a bad guy, so much so that God had just told Joseph, you need to go back to your homeland. So Joseph goes back to his homeland, and the new king there scares him. Can you imagine being Joseph? Joseph's got his little, little wife. He's never even been with her. They got a little Jesus. They're traveling all over the place. This is hard. This is hard. And he was afraid to go there. Look what it says next. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. That what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. For this one, I said, return and keep. God told him to go back, and Joseph and his family were expected to keep seeking in all the difficulty, in all the opposition, they were to keep seeking the Lord. It's a weird turn of events. It's how the birth narratives end. As you can see, chapter two's over, and chapter three is now into Jesus being an adult because we have John the Baptist coming, right? So the birth passages are over, but we see all the heaviness that Jesus and his family had to go through. Now, here's the thing. We've got in Matthew chapter 1, Bethlehem, according to the Old Testament prophets. We've got in Matthew chapter 2, sorry, we've got beginning, sorry about that. Matthew chapter 2 at the beginning, we've got Bethlehem, according to the prophets, all right? We've got in Matthew chapter 2, Egypt, according to the prophets. In Matthew chapter 2, we've got Rachel and Israel weeping, according to the prophets. You see the theme here? Matthew is saying, this Jesus is the answer to the world's problems. This Jesus is the answer to our sin problem. This Jesus is the fulfillment of every longing every human being's ever had. And this Jesus is the fulfillment to God's plan for the world. It truly is all about Well, as it gets to the end of that passage, if you look at verse 23, it says they ended up in Nazareth, and you all know that. He's called Jesus of Nazareth. But what's challenging here, and I, re I really wrestled with this this week, is that it doesn't tell us where that's quoted. Do you see in verse 23 that it says that the prophets might be fulfilled? Well, guess what? There isn't anywhere where the prophets say from Nazareth. And that threw me, that threw me off. I didn't know what the answer to this was. Because I can tell you that, uh, that that quote from Bethlehem, where that's found in Micah, and I can tell you that that quote from Egypt, where that's found in Hosea, and I can tell you where that quote about the weeping is found in Jeremiah 31. I see that. But this about Nazareth, it's not found anywhere. So 
had to really, really dig. And here's what it is. Jesus is known as Jesus of Nazareth. You know that, right? He's Jesus of Nazareth. And that's the way everybody knew him. You know what that does? That speaks to him having such a bad reputation. Nazareth is one of those places where nobody thinks anything good of it. Nazareth is one of those places where when somebody says that's where they're from, everybody's like, oh my goodness. That's the bad side of town. That's where people say be careful. That's where people say you better watch out. That's where people frown on everything that's associated with that area. That's the way Nazareth was. Some of y'all may remember in John chapter one when Jesus is calling the disciples. You remember that? You got uh, Peter, Andrew. You got James and John, the first disciples. And do you remember who was next? Philip and Thomas. Do you remember that? In John chapter one, here's what it says. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip. And he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Listen to this. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. We have found the Savior, Jesus of Nazareth. Here's what he says back. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Y'all, Nazareth is known as a bad place. It's known as a dump. Nobody's from there. And it's interesting because you and I know that Jesus can be known from a lot of different places. You might say, man, Jesus the Egyptian. Well, he was born there, right? You might say, Jesus the Bethlehemite. Well, well, listen, you know that Bethlehem is known as the city of David. So if Jesus had taken on the name of Jesus from Bethlehem, then you and I and the whole world would associate him with royalty, wouldn't they? King David, oh, man, he's from King David, man, he's from Bethlehem, he's from where David is, man, he's just born in that, man, he's from good roots, he's from good family, man, he's just going to be awesome his whole life. That's the way his reputation would have been. It's not his reputation. All you know about Jesus, he was born in Bethlehem. Nobody talks about him being from Bethlehem. You know where he's from? You know where he grew up? You know where he was from, from age two to age 30? He came on the scene, Nazareth. And when everybody thinks bad about Nazareth, talks bad about Nazareth, guess who arises out of Nazareth? I really want to go on a little tangent right here to say, hey, don't be ashamed of where you're from. Don't be ashamed of where you're from. Hey, let everybody talk bad about where you're from. You just represent and be the best person you can be. Have some character. Have some integrity. Keep your word. Serve well. Be a blessing. Be a light. Don't matter where you're from. The worst place where the disciples, right? The disciples were known as being bums, and they're like, Nazareth? We ain't following some dude from Nazareth. Jesus said, that's right, I'm from Nazareth. Now, I don't know if they joked around when they hung out, but I can imagine they tried to give Jesus a hard time about being from Nazareth. Nobody gave Jesus a hard time when it came to his character. Nobody gave Jesus a hard time when it came to his honesty, his faithfulness, his good, good, goodness, his commitment to the community, his love for his family, his love for his neighbor, his willing to help, his kindness, his being slow to anger, his always pointing people toward God from Nazareth. Folks, I don't know where you're from, what neighborhood you live in, what street you're on. Don't be ashamed of it. Set your eyes on God. Let God define you. Fear the Lord. Follow Christ. Represent him. Be a light in the darkness. Who cares where you're from? Don't matter if everybody in your street is anti-God. You live for God wherever you're at. Don't matter what everybody else in your school's like. You live for God regardless of what your school's like. Jesus is from Nazareth. So when the Bible says to us, it fulfilled the prophet's, that Jesus was from Nazareth, here's what it means. It's pointing us to all the places where they talk bad about Jesus. And perhaps the very, very best one is Isaiah 53. 
Listen to what it says here in Isaiah 53. He was despised. That means they hated him. He was rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief and is one from whom men hide their faces. They didn't want to see him. They didn't want to be associated with him. They mocked him. They spit at him. They thought they were better than him. They looked down upon him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. People think less of Jesus because they did not understand him and he was okay with that identity. Hey, you be who you can be. You set your heart on God. You have a conviction about you that you hate sins, that you're not gonna compromise your character. You're gonna speak truth, walk in truth. You're gonna love well. You're gonna forgive well. You're not gonna judge people. You're gonna be kind in every situation. You let them form your opinion. You walk in your integrity like Jesus did. And while the Bible tells us that the whole world rejects him, Matthew says, that fulfilled the prophets because he was from Nazareth. He didn't have the reputation as the people from Nazareth. He was the son of God. One commentator said, the prophecy that our Lord would be despised by men was fulfilled when his contemporaries spoke of him scornfully as a prophet from Nazareth. Y'all, we have here at the end of Matthew chapter two a rather odd setting because it's all this travel, but it's all of this fulfilling what the Old Testament was about. Folks, we have to deal with that. I know it's our tendency to not necessarily know if we need God or think if we need God or will he help us or things like that. The Bible wants us to see we do need him. God wants you to hear today, you need God. You must not ignore that. I get to do a lot of funerals. I've kind of gotten to where I like doing funerals. I know that's odd. I found that it's good for my soul. I usually leave funerals, come home and give my wife a hug and tell her I love her. I usually leave funerals and come home and want to spend time with my kids because I realize time is short, right? And that's a good thing. They're good. And one of the things I try to say at every funeral is that I want to get you sitting in the pews to think about your death. I know you don't want to. I know you don't like to. But it will be good for you. And I believe that. See, society wants us to never think about death. It's pessimistic. It's morbid. It's, it's negative. And let's just not ever bring that up. And so guess what we see? People dying and then people freaking out because they can't handle it. But the Bible tells us, listen, that there is an answer to death. The Bible says that God's love is better than life. So whatever you find life to be, good, bad, short, long, miserable, suffering, awful, God's love is better than life. There are some things that even though we're trying to tell ourselves let's not deal with it, let's not think about it, that we must. And that's what's happening here at Matthew chapter two. Jesus has a history. History points us to Christ. They said a long time ago he'd come out of Egypt. They said a long time ago he'd be born of a virgin. They said a long time ago he'd be born in Bethlehem. They said a long time ago that he would be Jesus of Nazareth. And guess what? He is, and that means something, and you ought to trust in him. Believe. Do not let your sin, your distractions, your neighborhood, your teammates, your coworkers, do not let them keep you from embracing this Christ. When the world needed God, he came. He came. And it was God's plan to love us and save us. Believe it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you.
from Matthew and his birth narratives. Thank you, God, for the fulfillment of the prophecies. Thank you, God, for Joseph and his obedience. Thank you, God, that your word calls us to believe. Help us too, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.